Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. I'm joined by my MMU journalism colleagues, Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. Uh, we're, we'll be looking at some things strictly legal today, later on, but we're also taking a sideways look at issues of diversity. That's diversity in the coverage of stories and diversity in the workplace. We'll come to that in just a moment. Remember, first of all, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at RightsBang. And so do please get in touch with us if you get any comments on today's podcast or the issues that we're talking about. To kick things off, what have we all been reading, watching this week? Um, Jez, what have you been looking at? Yeah, it's, it's something really that follows on from what I was talking about last week, about the local democracy reporter scheme, which has just had its first 12 months. And I noticed this week that uh, there was news of... Uh, the first Facebook-funded uh, community re- reporters are being recruited now. Um, I think there's going to be 80 recruited in all, uh, and one of them will be in the Grenfell Tower borough. Um, but these are first to be funded by Facebook, um, and it's in partnership with big regional news groups like Reach, NewsQuest, uh, JPI, Media, Arch, and those sorts of companies. Um, and the idea is that they'll be trained by the NCTJ, um, and they'll also be employed in those areas in the country where local reporting has sort of suffered from cuts and uh, closures of newspapers, essentially. So it's kind of there to beef up the local reporting. So yeah. sounds yeah. like a good, good well, Very interesting they've chosen particularly the Grenfell Tower area. Yes. Like Kensington and one yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It yeah. is interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The NCTJ were very keen on all of that when we were at their conference last year, weren't we? Yeah, I think there have been a few eyebrows raised about the Facebook involvement, you know, um, given Facebook's history of, with journalism, which is sometimes fractious, mm. uh, having a stranglehold on you know, platforms and knock-on effect for advertising. But ultimately, the NCTJ would sell it as, listen, it's putting out reporters on the street, so to speak. So yeah. hard, hard to ignore that. And Facebook have got the money, of course. So yeah. yeah, exactly. All helps. So. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Dave, what's got your eye? Um, today, a couple of interesting uh, defamation cases, Pete. One is uh, a, a, an interesting decision going to the being considered by the Supreme Court. It's Stocker versus Stocker. It's not strictly journalism, but it certainly shows uh, an interesting facet to digital uh, comms. So it's basically a, a woman who posted uh, a Facebook post about her ex-husband, and he sued for defamation. She basically said, um, you know, that he tried to strangle me. And when it came to, so he sued uh, for defamation, and uh, it came down to what you, uh, the definition of strangle. And at first, you know, was it, uh, was it, so in fact, I think the courts went to the Collins English Dictionary, and to strangle means to try and kill. Whereas she said, well, actually, I didn't mean that. Uh, I simply meant that he went to put his arm hand around my neck and squeeze me, you know, tight, not to kill me. Um, she, it was lost, um, the loss of case went to appeal, and um, it's now gone to the Supreme Court to look at the, it's all, it's all around, which is really interesting for students, because we always say to them, listen, defamation is about a meaning of words, and it's about what we call the right thinking person on the street, and they're looking for what the, what the lawyers call uh, the single right meaning. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out, mm-hmm. uh, what, you know, what the meaning of uh, to strangle is. So, and the other one was, of course, uh, the Shadow Justice Secretary, uh, Richard Bergon, is, and this, he's suing the Sun for um, uh, headline, um, Reich and Roll, and basically Tom, this guy is a big fan of the heavy metal, he's been involved with friends since he was a young lad, and he, he there's a band called Dream Troll, and he tweeted or retweeted, there's a post out there, um, 
which which um, the iconography, the typography is very similar kind of to angular, Nazi. Angular font, yeah, the yeah. SS. Yeah. Mm. And so the sun picked this up, and, and the, as I say, the headline was Reich and Roll, and 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 the, the defence is that you know we're not we're not saying that he's a Nazi or whatever, but obviously there's anti-Semitism mm. uh, given what's in. Uh, being discussed there's a public interest argument there so it'll be interesting to see how that one pans out I don't want to say anything more because it's a current case but um, yeah very interesting yeah and so the 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 Facebook defamation case we'll see what happens with that because there's obviously a lot of public interest in it and it might be that the Supreme Court when they make the decision they might do it verbally in front of the cameras so we might be able to bring listeners a little a little bit of that speaking about cases with high profile public interest we got the we got a kind of preliminary case approval document from the um the High Court earlier this week from uh, Mr Justice Warby who's been looking at the Philip Green case against the Telegraph and we can now say officially it was Philip Green, the unnamed um, tycoon who was involved in all of that um, Justice Warby um, says in his, his, his um, statement which came after the hearing on it was published on Monday, um, he said that it was now just pointless to yeah. not to name Sir Philip Green mm-hmm. as, as being one of the litigants involved in the case yeah. and, and the two companies, Arcadia and so on. So that was, I guess, interesting, even though it's been in the public domain, I guess, yes, since, yes. Since, since Peter Hayne, Lord Hayne, made the announcement in the, in the, yeah. in the House of Lords. Um, Justice Warby also tackled that <laughs> towards the end of this, I think, what, 14-page judgment I've got here? Um, because uh, the, the litigants are are claiming that he got that information, Peter Hayne got that information about um, Sir Philip Green from, from the lawyers who were taking the case. Mm-hmm. Um, now that came out uh, in public a couple of days afterwards, yeah. that was part of Philip Green's kind of defense, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, Mr. Justice Warby says that he's, he's now written to the Speaker of the House of Lords um, mm-hmm. to say whether, that's, whether that is going to be an issue and how, how they propose to tackle it. It's likely to be, according to, to Justice Warby, it's likely to be um, held in camera. All that discussion is likely to be in camera. But uh, it is something that, that's going to be kind of very interesting in the case because he, he refers back to basically to the, the, the Bill of Rights in, in 1689. So we're talking about some pretty ancient statute <laughs> here that might be invoked. But he's also, one of the other things that is going to be part of the discussion so the full case is going to be begin on the 4th of February a couple of weeks time um, and at the heart of it it looks like there's going to be a, a source disclosure request from right. the from the litigants which means right. they want basically to hand over all the paperwork that the Telegraph has mm-hmm. and they're going to be looking at there's an issue about whether they look into the metadata mm-hmm. around that t- that paperwork to see the origins of it, where mm. it came from, whose hands it went yeah. through. So that and you, it's a bit of a reminder, really, of the Sarah Tisdall case in, uh, against the, involving the Guardian mm. and the Official Secrets Act back in the 1980s, yes. where yeah. the Guardian handed back a document, and by handing that document back to the uh, Ministry of Defence, I think it was, yeah. it showed the kind of fingerprint of the photocopier Peter and, and therefore yeah. led, on, led, them, led the mm. Ministry of Defence back to Sarah Tisdall. Yeah. Which, uh, mm. which I kind of identified her as the source. So there's all of that sort of stuff. And uh, there's also the, the, the Fred Goodwin case, which um, Justice Warby invoked. So mm. it's going to be very interesting yeah, yeah. To, to see what finally comes out of it. So very there's another pre-trial hearing Tuesday next week, the 29th, and then the main hearing um, on the, yeah. the following week. So a fascinating one for our media law students. It's, uh, a lot of things we talk about in lectures that are kind of being touched upon, aren't they? Yeah. What the yeah. case studies we, we look at. Yeah, and so this will be a real life case that we, we mm. can look at and, and refer the students to. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, 
I was going to say I hope they enjoy it. <laughs> it's hardly <laughs> something that anyone's going to enjoy, but it is going to be interesting to see to yes. see how it turns out. Yeah. We'll whether the original it. injunction is squashed, quashed mm-hmm. rather, or, or whether the, the injunction is upheld. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's go back to our main story this week, because it partly arises from a major story for The Guardian. Um, one of its documentaries, Black Sheep, was nominated for an Oscar this week. It's the story of Cornelius Walker, who lived five minutes away from the spot on a housing estate in London, where the schoolboy Damalola Taylor was murdered in November, November 2000. Cornelius's parents decided to leave Peckham to move to Essex, thinking it would be a safer environment to bring up a young teenager. But almost immediately after they arrive in their new home, Cornelius is beaten up by a gang of white racists. His reaction is, as he says in the film, to try to fit in. After I lost that fight, I just said to myself, the only way I'm going to survive is if I fit in, if I become like them. So I did whatever I needed to do to fit in to a group of people who hated the colour of my skin. It's not even like I wanted to be white. I just wanted to fit in. And if it meant being like white people, then let's do it. So that's a segment from The Guardian's Black Sheep documentary, which you can watch for free on The Guardian website. It's a huge breakthrough for the newspaper. There are lots of issues around the success of the paper's transition from print to its modern multimedia output. We could probably discuss all day. But issues around portrayal, identity and diversity have been front and centre for some of our students at MMU this week. ITV's consultant in diversity, Vidar Harding, has been speaking to both our first year and our postgrad students about how some of these issues are tackled in the industry. So what is the position across the journalism industry today? Just before we came to the studio, I spoke to a group of our MA students to see what they think. Okay, so to have a look at some of these issues in diversity in in the workforce, but also diversity in sort of portrayal. Um, We've butted into the, or I've butted into the media law class yet again to do a, a couple of quick interviews with uh, with some of our postgrad students. So I'm joined here by um, Sophia Khan and Mia Abayawardene and by Alex Candlin um, to talk about some of this stuff. And the kicking off point really is a report from uh, last year, late last year, by the National Council for the Training of Journalists, and they'd surveyed the workforce uh, and a whole lot of other stuff. But they, they looked, they, what they found was that the, the, journal, the, the workforce in journalism and in the media is a good deal less diverse than the population. Um, and it's by a substantial percentage, number of percentage points. Sophia, were you surprised by that? No, not really. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of journalists of colour on television, for example, but that was in the past. But what I'm what I'm starting to see now is uh, a, a change, a change in direction. It's great to see reporters and journalists like Naga Munchetti and and a lot more that I see on television now. And it's good to identify with them because I'm a woman of colour, and not just that. I'm a woman of the Muslim faith, and I have a pretty diverse background. And I like to see. Uh, people that are a true representation of diversity within our society and someone I can um, see that is a lot like myself on television too because then I feel like I'm included myself. So I I would like to see journalism as a field, as a workplace, to be more diverse, a lot more diverse, I think. 
Mia, there's, I guess there's an issue about sort of social justice and inclusion in all of that that Sophia is talking about, but it also kind of leads into diversity of coverage because if you come from that kind of background, it might give you a different approach to a story. Do you think that's fair? Um, yeah, well, I think if you have experience and knowledge of a certain community or a certain part of the world, it definitely will help in your coverage of it. So I think... Um, encouraging diverse wor workforces, you're uh, going to be able to access all these different communities and different kinds of stories, and that will just generally make the stories that you create just a lot better and more enriching. Do you find it? Uh, do you find it sort of intimidating at all coming into a profession with with your background where the vast majority of people are white? Yeah, I think it can be a bit overwhelming and I think what I feel like a lot of places can often like champion diversity or like really want to promote it but then when you get there it seems to only promote conformity so it can be a bit of like a double-edged sword I guess. Alex the one of the th conclusions in the report is that you'd expect that because the majority of journalists more than two-thirds of journalists are working in London and then a larger majority, for example, working here in Manchester, we have a diverse population anyway. It's even more surprising that the number of journalists from a minority ethnic background is still relatively low. Is that a surprise to you? Um, not, uh, not quite a surprise. I, only, um, it's, I believe it when you say it. Um, but uh, I think that will change over time, as, it always, as things always do. Um, and uh, particularly you'll find uh, different um, people doing different... Um, going into different professions because in journalism you might find a, a different um, ethnicity um, proportion in but that won't be the same as in doctors or that won't be in the same in other professional professions and workplaces so it could change but it's uh, either a good thing or a bad thing but uh, it's just something that will change over time and more more people you'll get be able to do more stories and more ideas which is exactly what you need as journalists. Is there a kind of that one of the issues as well is, is sort of class that it, it's an expensive trade to get into, even though the rewards aren't that brilliant because the average income is less than thirty thousand. Um, but it's expensive to get into because you have to go through the whole process of you know work experience and placements and so on, where very often you or your mum or your dad or whatever are are paying for you through that. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, it's um, it's more of a work a um, middle class thing, um, simply because uh, you need the um, financial backing to do it um, and um, I think again that might change um, depending on uh, what kind of outlets um, outlets like it some people might be able to do it freelance some people might be able to just take opinions from uh, from members of the public and run with it if they uh, if they find potential so there's definitely there's always a way in and also through um, education if uh, you can prove yourself in the educational world you can prove yourself in the professional world Mia, do you feel kind of confident now that you've, you're going through this course and beginning to learn the, the kind of lay of the land and stuff? Do you feel that your, your post-grad study is kind of preparing you for the world of work? Yeah, well, I feel this course is a very um, practical one. So it's like very much very hands-on. So I feel like it definitely is in terms of like getting experience and just getting out there and just doing the work. Um, yeah, especially like last term and creating my own podcast and getting out there and talking to people. Um, I feel like that's all very valuable experience um, 
and yeah, curating a portfolio to go forward into the workforce. And how much of it is kind of diversity in your coverage in the podcast or your work generally? Is that a, is that an issue that's in your mind when you're doing stuff, or is it very, pretty much in the background? I think initially when I started, I was quite. Um, I didn't want to get pigeonholed into just cover, covering issues on diversity, but I think um, having come up against, I don't know, it feels like sort of social barriers, I guess. I think it is important to the work that I will do. So I do try and, um, yeah, cover it when I can. Okay. And Sophia, before we switch the record button on, you were talking a little bit about how you try and get that more diverse coverage into some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to uh, include content from people from a diverse background, for example, the Somali community, the Kurdish community, we don't really hear about within the media. And because I understand my own experiences coming from an ethnic minority, but it's not the only thing I want to cover. But because I am from an ethnic minority background, I want to cover it, I want to touch upon it, I want to bring it to the forefront, I want to provide a narrative. And so it's not just about the workforce, it's about the content too that I will produce. And I think it's a passion for me to 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 bring that diversity in and and bring people in and include them and, and that's what I hope will make me a good journalist. Okay, I would love to talk about this all morning, and I'm sure you all three of you have got lots to say about it. But uh, better let you get back to class. Sophia, Mia, Alex, thanks very much indeed. Back to the studio. So thanks again to Sophia, to to Mia, and to Alex for for that. Um, Jez, Dave, what do you think? Diversity and well, we had Vidar's um, lecture. Yeah, this week. I mean, we had I had Vidar in a couple of years ago with my masters, and he, he was really interesting guy and talked about I suppose there's two sides of his coin. Is one, uh, do we have enough diversity in terms of uh, who recruits into the industry and who works as a journalist? That that's it's arguable that it has improved. I think looking around, uh, anecdotally, you see more diverse newsrooms. Um, and also the other side of the coin is, you know, how do we represent diverse communities in the way that we, we report? And I think it's really in good for students to have somebody like Vidor to come up um, at the start of their careers before they're just, you know, starting to report. Um, so when they do go out there, they, they, they're at the back of their minds are thinking about, you know, what are they representing their communities correctly? Uh, you know, is there enough, are there enough voices out there? I think we, we, we do, you know, uh, colleges do quite a lot to try and, you know, recruit them mm. from a diverse background. The NCTJ has its diversity fund. Here at MMU we have uh, an Al-Habib scholarship, which is, gives a, a small stipend to um, somebody from, a, you know, a, an ethnic minority background. So I think we, we try fairly hard, and, but I think overall the industry could do better, uh, and it still seems predominantly white, middle class, even male, perhaps. Uh, and I think there's also a class issue. Mm, you know, yeah. um, you don't get, you know, you look at all the nationals, there's a lot of public school figures in the BBC, sort of very, a lot of Tims and, uh, you know, dare I say, all the kind of upper middle class types. So yeah. I, I, you know, I uh, don't want to be too controversial, but it, it's diversity covers a lot of spectrums. Yeah, and it's a bit ironic, really, three white blokes sitting around <laughs> talking about <laughs> diversity. Yeah. But, but Jess, what's, what's your take on what you've yeah, I mean, seen and heard this week? Um, you know, following on from what Dave was talking about, I'm looking at the NCTJ's Journalists at Work report. Yeah. Um, and they sort of, they're sort of reflecting what you're saying, um, you know, um, 
and also a shift uh, class-wise in terms of it. Se journalism seems to be an industry that's certainly um, open more. Or it, the entry is for people with degrees, postgraduate, mm. but also people from the sort of backgrounds where their parents are perhaps from higher earning, you know, industries and that. So maybe we're not getting as many people from sort of working class backgrounds coming into journalism, uh, which is something that's shifted. It's certainly in my lifetime, I would say. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the things that one of the things that, for instance, Lisa Nandy, the Wigan MP, mentioned a couple of weeks back in the House of Commons when they were talking about the Johnson Press mm. changes and the crisis that they were facing, was that for a lot of young working class kids trying, mm. trying to get into the industry, local newspapers traditionally has been one of those routes. So, yeah. you know, like when I started out journalism by and large was kind of an apprenticeship entry yeah. job and then yeah. you know during the 90s and the early noughties it became a, a graduate entry job yeah. and now increasingly yeah. the NCTD themselves yeah. point out it's now a postgrad entry mm. job. Well it is and it's definitely professionalised in the sense that you know as you say years ago it was seen as a trade and a craft mm. but although we are professional we don't we don't have a many would argue professional remuneration and mm. you know Somebody who's now spent a lot of money going to university and maybe thinking of a postgrad, um, you're thinking, gosh, you know, what's the starting salary? I don't know, 23, 24, mm. compared to, mm. if you're lucky, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, compared to what if I went into pharmacy or accountancy or law, where a lot of, as, as Jess says, you know, parents would say, well, do you really want to do journalism? Because mm. it's, it's long hours, low pay, <sighs> not attractive to many people mm. in some yeah. instances. Yeah. Do you think, um, get, sort of changing tack slightly and looking at diversity in, and inclusion in stories, coverage of stories, mm. um, we're, we're in Manchester, which mm. has got, what, 300-odd languages spoken in Manchester, mm. one of the, probably the most diverse city outside of mm. London in, in the UK. Um, do you think kind of coverage from the MEN and kind of other big outlets around here reflects the diversity of the population around Greater Manchester and Lancashire? In Cheshire. It's hard to say. And also, the types of stories that are reflecting the, the ethnic groups in the area, are they mm. positive stories? Are they negative? You know, what's the kind of the perception that readers get? Yeah. You know, um, I would say there's still somewhere to go. I, yeah. I think the MN, um, from what I can see, maybe, you know, looks at its traditional working class audience, and I'm not sure that's changed dramatically. Um, mm. And I think Manchester is a very vibrant, as you say, multicultural city. Is that reflected? Arguably not. Mm. I'm sure somebody will come and argue yeah. against me, but yeah. I, that's what I kind of see. Yeah. Interesting, one of the things that Sophia was saying was that she, in her work for the Northern Quarter and elsewhere, she kind of makes an effort to go out and look for those stories. So mm, she's done yes. reporting on asylum seekers and so mm. on, for example, and she's making a con conscious effort to report on, for example, the Kurdish community and so on. Mm. Yeah, I, I, well, I guess events like the British Asian Media Awards gives you a good cross-section of the sort of news coverage across not just in print but in broadcast as well that is being done but it's um but that kind of pulls it all together in one event be to see it but um mm. yeah it like was interesting actually the last asian media awards were you know a lot of the winners were coming up and saying you know i i, I went against my parents wishes and when this when i said i wanted to be a journalist yes. they were completely shocked um but here i'm now collecting this prestigious prize mm. so that that's got to be on for the good yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, if we just uh, wheel back a little bit, um, Black Sheep, The Guardian getting a, mm -hmm. an Oscar nomination. Who would have thought, like a few yeah. years ago, The Guardian up for an Oscar? Yeah. Um, what do you think, Jess? I think it's I think it's fantastic. I think it's brilliant to see 
you know, The Guardian, a traditional print uh, news outlet, sort of expanding into other territories, and the, and the idea of the converged newsroom, you know, the, the line between what's print and what's broadcast is kind of being blurred. So it was interesting, I was reading about Black Sheep to see that, um, you know, uh, filmmakers from maybe a, a sort of fiction background working with The Guardian, and I think... Yeah, because there's a whole series of reconstructions yeah, which are, you know, key to the whole film. To bring that you know. kind of, um, those production values to what might otherwise just be a news, an online news mm. uh, documentary, but yeah. to bring those production values to this, I think it's really impressive. And I was also impressed that uh, The Guardian has a head of documentaries, Charlie Phillips. So the fact that that, that, mm. that role exists in a newspaper, I think, yeah, is really yeah, encouraging. Yeah, I mean, they've been, they, to be fair, Black Sheep is not typical of a lot of mm. the Guardian documentary output. A lot of it is much more kind of newsy, but mm. is very often sort of slice of life type stuff. John yeah. Harris, for example, has done a lot of these these kind of documentaries, um, particularly around Brexit. So he'd mm. been to Northern Ireland, he'd been to Stoke on Trent, mm. and places like that. Um, Covering, covering these things. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a breakthrough for them, mm. Dave. I think it would, you know, enthuse students who would see, like Jess says, a news organisation really um, tackling all spheres, documentary filmmaking um, increasingly um, as part of a journalist toolkit, really, in many ways. Mm. So, yeah, fantastic, great news. I recommend people go and watch it. Yeah. Yep. Let's hope they win the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Fingers <laughs> crossed we'll be watching in April. Yeah. So um, a reminder, you've been, you've been listening to Bang to Rights from the MMU Journalism Unit. Um, if you have a view on that, and actually, if you have a view on us veering off into general stuff about the state of journalism, mm -hmm. if you've got a view on that, you please do tweet us. Let us know at Rights Bang. We'd love to hear from you. But that's just about it for Bang to Rights for this week. Before we go, Jez, Dave... What can the students expect from, from you in the, in the next couple of weeks? Uh, well, we just started Ofcom. We'll be doing it next week. So yep. taking a deep look into all the various sections and uh, clauses. Yeah, um, for the Level 5s, Media Law and Reg, we're doing Ofcom this week. Uh, next week, we'll be doing regulation on the internet. And the Level 6s next week. Uh, and I know they're quite excited about this. We're do looking at fake news. Yeah. Lots of Trump uh, video clips to look yeah. forward to. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we'll have a go at deep fakes at one of, yeah. these, one of these days as well. Okay. Yes. Well, um, thanks, Jez. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Remember, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts. And as usual, you'll also find us on Stitcher or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. Please give us a rating there. It helps spread the word, helps others find us. And uh, do let us know. Speak to us, have a word with us on Twitter uh, if, you, if there's anything you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.